Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. A couple of years ago, during a seminar here at the church, we uh, had a video where the presenter shared that there were some United Methodist congregations in the United States where a, uh, they would resist uh, if the bishop of that area tried to appoint a woman or a person of color to serve those churches, and certainly they would resist somebody who was both. Now, bishops who preside in those regions and who are responsible for appointing clergy know the, the local particulars well enough to not push the envelope in those churches. You'd be correct to think that many of those churches are in the South. But you would be wrong to think that that same thing does not happen uh, on the West Coast as well. A member of our church, Bill Nesbitt, approached me after that seminar to inquire if that was, in fact, the case, that were he an ordained clergy person, there would be some United Methodist churches where he would not be able to serve simply based on the color of his skin. And sadly, even in some of our churches, that is the case. It's the minority, the distinct minority, but it is still the case. In the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and during the Black Lives Murder protest, I spent some time in introspection. And I concluded, I, I might be wrong on this, but I concluded that if I were not a white male, married with children, but most importantly, a white male, it is not likely that I would have been appointed to serve the St. Paul's congregation. Not because the bishop of our region thinks that we are a congregation of racists and misogynists, but because our community is just not there yet. Why do I say that? Well, just look around. The only lead pastor uh, who, in a congregation in, in Coronado who's female is the Christ Episcopal Church. And, and there are no pastors of color who are the lead pastor of their church, though the associate at Graham is. And this is one reason that I thought it was really important that the Reverend Susan Jurgensen be appointed to serve us. She was a fully ordained elder. We were ordained the same year, a fully ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, and she came to serve among us. One member who has since left St. Paul's actually complained to me about a sermon that Pastor Susan uh, preached where she mentioned, it was last January, that she had been moved 
to see Kamala Harris take her oath of office at the inauguration. Now, Pastor Susan did not say that she agreed with Kamala Harris's policy positions, nor did she say anything remotely political. She simply said that as a woman, to see a woman become the first woman to hold the office of vice president was moving to her as a woman. And I know that this is true of other women in our congregation, just as I know it is true that many women were delighted when Pastor Susan joined our ministry team. But the, that former member's complaint was sadly reflective of the hyper-reactivity that currently scars our culture, our society, our communities, and our churches. I was talking to somebody this week, and they said, well, we are living in a time where, you know, if you can react, why not overreact? And that just seems to be the deal, you know? Just, just the mention of Kamala Harris's name was it. I do miss Pastor Susan. I miss that she brought her voice I, and saw things in Scripture that I did not see. And she lifted those up, and I'm better for it. Well, all this is said by way of introduction to week four in our uh, nine-week Think Again series, nine beliefs that Christians should reconsider. And today we're looking at the belief that many Christians adhere to that based on Ephesians 5.22, women, wives, should be subordinate to their husbands and certainly citing 1 Timothy 2.12 that women should not be in authority over men as preachers and teachers. So let's listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians and from somebody you might recognize. Greetings from your sister church, Corona United Methodist. No, I'm just kidding. It's not your sister church. But I am Pastor Susan Jurgensen. I'm the pastor here at Corona. I used to be at Coronado last year, though, so it's my privilege to say hello to you again and offer this passage to you, this scripture reading from Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 23 through 39. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you were baptized into Christ, have been clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
These are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So what gives? Mainline Protestant churches would cite Galatians and other scriptures to argue that establishing hierarchical distinctions based on gender is antithetical to what Paul proclaims has been accomplished in Christ Jesus. And that efforts to reestablish any such hierarchy are simply rebuilding the wall of separation that Christ has torn down. Other Christians would argue that 1 Timothy 2.12 is an explicit prohibition against women serving in church leadership. And based on Ephesians 5.22, one major denomination passed in 1998, legislation requiring wives, quote, graciously submit to their husbands. Guys, be careful. Pausing at the Ephesians passage for a moment, it is just one chapter later in Ephesians 6, 5, where Paul writes, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling in singleness of heart as you obey Christ. And yet we don't advocate or promote slavery, do we? Though there is a troubling rise arise in white supremacy uh, that we're witnessing right now. Indeed, many very active congregations, those where women would not be allowed to serve in leadership, do engage in efforts to end human trafficking. And this is because we know that when Paul wrote these words about slavery, slave ownership was a way of life. Paul was part of that culture, and so this worldview is reflected in his writings. Still, Ephesians 6 5 was among the texts cited by Southern ministers to accuse those who were advocating for the abolition of slavery as ignoring the plain meaning of Scripture. Of course, I'm uh, talking about the time leading up to the Civil War, and I will tell you that one of the reasons I'm proud of our uh, heritage is that John Wesley, much earlier, uh, was one of the people who said that, that uh, slavery was a gross evil. Similarly, in Paul's day, women were considered property of their fathers and their husbands. So his words, understandably, reflect that worldview. As mainline Protestants, we would say that Ephesians 5.22 reflects Paul's cultural setting, not God's eternal will. The same as slavery does not. Other Christians would argue they do uh, deride uh, our position as accommodating culture and ignoring the plain meaning of Scripture. Well, about that. Let's delve into what the Bible reveals about women in leadership 
Luke 2.36 mentions the prophet Anna, who is at the temple when Mary and Joseph come to present uh, their newborn, Jesus. And then Acts 21.9 tells us of Philip, a male evangelist, who had four daughters who all had the gift of prophecy. A prophet is somebody who is inspired by God to deliver God's message to the world. In other words, a preacher. Not all uh, pastor, uh, not all preachers are prophets, but all prophets are preachers. And though 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 certainly reflects the cultural worldview of the time, Paul's words in verse 5 clearly indicate his expectation that women would prophesy. In Romans 16.1, Paul writes of Phoebe, a church deacon who he clearly esteems. And six verses later, he mentions Junia, who he describes as an apostle. Not only that, but as a prominent, some translations say an outstanding apostle. An apostle is one who is sent out to proclaim and teach people the good news of Christ. So likewise, in Philippians 4, 2 through 3, Paul greets Euodia and Syntyche, as co-workers, using the Greek term synergos, which is usually reserved for apostles. In Acts 18.2, we read of Achilla and Priscilla. Achilla is the husband, so he's mentioned first, as that was the custom, still is many times, right, to use the man's name first. The Acts passage then narrates that Paul stayed and worked with Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. Paul himself specifically identifies both Aquila and Priscilla in Romans 16.3 as his co-workers, Synergos, in Christ. So with that in mind, let's take a look at Acts 18, 24 through 26, which tells us, Now there came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. So clearly, Priscilla, who Paul has called a co-worker in Christ, is teaching a man who is well-versed in the scriptures the way of God more accurately than he had understood. And notice that Priscilla's name is mentioned first, which happens a few more times in the New Testament, strongly implying 
that Priscilla may have been the more prominent of the two. Let's stick with the New Testament a little bit longer. According to all four of the Gospels, women were the first to learn of Christ's resurrection, and therefore the first to share this news with others. Depending on which Gospel we read, the first proclaimer was either, as Mark and John report, Mary Magdalene, or as Matthew 28 reports, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, or as Luke 24, 9 through 10 uh, narrates, Mary, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and others, other women. So to repeat, in every gospel, the first proclamation of the resurrection is by women. And so it is accurate to observe that if the women had kept silent, there would not be a church. Oh, you say, oh, Pastor Rob, you're overstating that. Surely Jesus would have found a way. Now who's being unbiblical? Because that's not in the text. Also, friends, let's remember that the idea that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute is not actually biblical. That's a fiction. Uh, I'm pretty sure generated by men. In all four of the Gospels, she participates in Jesus' Galilean ministry. She follows him to Jerusalem. She mourns at his crucifixion. She doesn't abandon him at the cross like the male disciples do. And on the first Easter, she goes and finds the tomb empty. And as I've just shared, the Gospels identify her as the first to learn that Jesus was raised from the dead. In short, as one scholar points out, Mary Magdalene is the primary witness to the fundamental data of our Christian faith. She was there for almost everything. And while we're at it, let's not overlook John 4. John 4.39 tells us uh, that the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus greets at the well was the first evangelist. Indeed, John 4, 7 through 38, records the longest conversation that Jesus has with anyone in all of the Gospels. And remember, only Jesus and the woman at the well were there. So this is an important story that it was retold. As one scholar asked, why would Jesus spend all that time th talking theology with a woman if he didn't want her to tell anyone about it? And she did. And because of her testimony, the, the town, the village she lived in, people came to believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world long before he was hung on a cross and long before his resurrection. That's a pretty effective evangelist. And so just like in, in Luke 10, 38 through 42, in the story of Mary and Martha, Jesus, in this story, is encouraging the spiritual pursuits 
of women. And Jesus never places restrictions about how they carry out their discipleship. And we should look to Jesus. Well, that leaves me uh, little time to point out Old Testament examples of women in leadership, and there are several, many more than you might expect. But I'm going to lift up Huldah. Have you heard of Huldah? Not surprising. Her story is told in 2 Kings 22, 11 through 20, and 2 Chronicles 34, 14 through 33. According to these passages, King Josiah's men were cleaning out the temple when they discover a scroll of the Torah that had been given by God to Moses. And King Josiah asked several men, including the high priest, to go and inquire about the scroll. Who do these men seek out for answers? Huldah. And if you read that passage, it's worth noticing that, that Huldah, of course, was married, but they went to her, not her husband, which made perfect sense because she is the prophet and he is the keeper of the royal wardrobe. Incidentally, Huldah was a contemporary of prophets like Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Nahum, so it's not like there weren't any male options. And yet Huldah is the one they seek. And she doesn't just instruct the men, men seek out her instruction. I, I, sorry, but I do have to skip over some other examples, like Deborah and Esther and Miriam. Friends, the deal is that Paul was undoubtedly bound by the cultural worldview of his time. On this and slavery. But just as slavery is outside of God's will for human flourishing, the same is true of the subjugation or diminishment of women as somehow less than. As I've demonstrated, there is abundant scriptural support for the egalitarian ethic of churches and denominations like ours as being both more biblical and more Christ-like when it comes to affirming the full partnership of women in marriage and in ministry. It is just nonsense to say that we're not being biblical. Nonsense. But let me describe, end by sharing uh, something a little lighter. It's Peanuts cartoon. I can't actually show you. By the way, if you're ever in Santa Rosa, I've said this before, go to the Charles Schultz Museum. It is so worth it. It is just great. But uh, in the cartoon I'm thinking of, Charlie Brown has just been beaten in a game of baseball by his arch nemesis, Lucy. And one of his friends is teasing Charles Brown for losing to a mere girl. And Charlie Brown responds, 
girls aren't as mere as they used to be. <laughs> Perhaps, however, if we take Scripture more seriously than we have, we will see that women have never been as mere as interpreters and theologians, primarily men, have made them out to be throughout history. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you for the voices of women who have helped lead me closer to you. God, it is so often the fact that it is women who are nourishing the faith of younger generations in a way that, that men do not volunteer as much to do. And God, we have treated uh, women for so long as uh, second-class citizens, as somehow incapable when compared to men, uh, being uh, a witness, a prophet, an apostle to the good news of Christ Jesus. And so we lament that, we confess that sin, and we ask you to make us bold in proclaiming that your good news puts us all on equal footing. We have all been clothed in Christ Jesus. And we are thankful for that grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.